Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it was great to welcome back to the Meeting House recently O.S. Hawkins, who is serving in leadership at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary on an interim basis. In our conversation, he talked about the promises of God and the importance of knowing and applying them you will be hearing some of his comments ahead. Plus, Christiana Kiefer of Alliance Defending Freedom has been involved in representing female athletes who have been forced to compete against biological males who are identifying as female. She provides an update on the case and the problematic nature of this violation of God's viewpoint of sexuality coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, you will meet Bill Combs of Shiloh Global Ministry, He has discovered an aspect of how the Torah, including Genesis, was handed down by Moses. He wrote in pictograms, an understanding of which can provide an enhanced view of the meaning. Find out more coming up. Finally, in our culture today, it is important that Christians embrace the sanctity of human life and be able to discuss the topic from a biblical perspective. David Clausen of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council talked with me recently about some of the different aspects he covers in a new booklet providing information that can be used in discussion. You will be hearing from him ahead. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. O.S. Hawkins has been involved in Christian leadership for many years and recently was appointed to an interim leadership position at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Texas. He has written a number of books containing the word code in the title. His latest is entitled The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. He provides encouragement to know and apply the promises of God. Here now from a recent Meeting House conversation is O.S. Hawkins. Well, there are 8,000 promises to us <laughs> wow. that God made in the Bible. And so I thought that might be a little voluminous. <laughs> so I took a, I picked 40 that I thought every believer should stand upon and know. You know, Bob, wh- whether somebody keeps his promise or not is based on his character. And this is what I want people to understand. You know, a, an unrepentant thief, say a guy that stole all the time, he got thrown in jail, got out and stole again, did it again, went to penitentiary, got out again. After an unrepentant thief standing before the judge and saying, Judge, I promise you I'm not going to steal again. That's not going to weigh very highly with the judge Mm -hmm. because of his character. How can we trust God to keep his promises to us because of his character? And the Bible says in Hebrews 6.18 that it is impossible for God to lie. His word is his bond, and our Bibles are laced with promises that he's made to us. Okay, so we're talking about the promises of God. As you mentioned, 8,000 of them. There are 40 contained within this particular book, and the subtitle suggesting that we are to claim the promises. So how does a Christian believer, once we perhaps discover or read or study about a promise in the Scriptures— how do we actually claim that? What does that mean? Well, you know what? What uh, You have to be careful with that word. Uh, uh, if I were rewriting it, I might put every believer should know. But here's the way <laughs> I claim promises. The Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. And th- this Bible is a, is, a, 
is a hidden book to us without the Holy Spirit leading us and teaching us. He says he'll lead us into all truth. And so that's why that's why a lost person can't really understand the Bible. It's only those of us who have the Holy Spirit in our lives who make who quicken it to our hearts. And so where do we get this faith? Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God there is not Logos. It's not your Bible. It's not Genesis to Revelation, the written word of God. It's Rhema. That's a Greek word that means a specific word to a specific person in a specific situation. You know, I'll give you an example. I pastored for 15 years, First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And we always had big campaigns of sharing Christ out of the Fort Lauderdale Beach on the Atlantic uh, seaboard. I remember one time a guy came up to me and said, he said, if you've got faith, you can walk on that water. Peter did. And uh, he, so he challenged me to go walk on the water. Well, you know, the difference between why I can have faith and not walk on the water and Peter did was Peter got a specific word to a specific person in a specific situation. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, come to me on the water. And Peter acted on the word of Christ. He did what Jesus asked him to do. He took him at his word, and he stepped out, and he walked on the water. God's never given me that kind of word. But, Bob, how many of us in the normal traffic patterns of our daily lives have been reading the word of God, and all of a sudden, a verse leapt off the pages of Scripture into our heart? It was, oh, God said, this is the verse I want you to stand on. This is the verse that's for you. And that's what we mean when we talk about claiming a verse. That's all we mean. You know, the the point is, you don't find the Bible promise. Bible promises find you. In the normal traffic pattern of your reading, when God, the Holy Spirit, quickens a verse and says, in that circumstance situation you're going through, climb up here and stand on this verse. O.S. Hawkins here on The Intersection. You can find him online at oshawkins.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, Christiana Kiefer. In our recent conversation, she discussed a case involving four women in the state of Connecticut who have been forced to compete against biological males in athletic events, which the Alliance Defending Freedom contends is a violation of Title IX. This conversation occurred following oral arguments before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in the case. Here now from that conversation is Christiana Kiefer. Well, I represent four brave female athletes, all of whom were track and field runners in the state of Connecticut during high school. My clients are Selena Soule, Chelsea Mitchell, Alana Smith, and Ashley Nicoletti. Well, starting in 2017, the Connecticut Association that governs athletics in the state started to allow first one and then two male athletes to compete in the girls' category, in girls' track and field. And it had a widespread and devastating impact on girls across the state. These two male athletes together won 15 women's state championship titles over the course of just three years. They set 17 new individual meet records, and they prevented girls from advancing from one level of competition to the next level of competition more than 85 times. So you can imagine Mm. that just two males alone had such a widespread devastating impact on female athletes across the state. And for my clients specifically, you know, four times client Chelsea Mitchell was the fastest girl in a statewide championship race. 
And yet she walked away being deprived of a gold medal and of the publicity and recognition that she deserved because a male athlete took it instead. My client, Selena, failed to advance from one level of competition to the next because two male athletes were bumped her down in placements and eliminated her from competing in her own race. My client, Alana, also um, failed to be recognized for her accomplishments. You know, as a freshman, she made it to one of the highest levels of high school track, New England Regionals, but she wasn't recognized as the runner-up in that event, which would have been quite an accomplishment. Instead, she was bumped down to a lower ranking, and the same thing with my client, Ashley. So this, is, this went on for several years across the state, devastated women's sports. My brave clients reached out to their, their school administrators, to their coaches, to even lawmakers and Title IX coordinators saying, somebody help us. Would somebody you know, fix this policy? It's not fair. It deprives girls of athletic opportunities. And unfortunately, no one would listen or help. So with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom, these four brave female athletes filed a federal lawsuit back in 2020 challenging this Connecticut policy and saying, look, this deprives girls and women of equal athletic opportunities, something that was promised to them under Title IX. And so you had a district court that obviously rejected your arguments. Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I do want you to address, if you will, the legal aspect, what is ADF contending and what are these young ladies contending with respect to the, the laws at play here? Well, 50 years ago, we passed, or Congress passed, Title IX, which is a federal law that initially was, was passed to stop sex discrimination against women and girls in education. But in the intervening years, it's really come to be synonymous with protecting athletic opportunities for women and girls. You know, the whole reason we have women's sports as a separate category is because we recognize, and it's right to recognize in law and policy, that males and females are different. And if we want a future where girls can be on the podium and showcase their talents, earn those college scholarship opportunities and those, those championship titles, then we have to protect the integrity of women's sports as a separate category. So our argument is that by Connecticut allowing males to come in and dominate the girls' category and take away opportunities from my clients, Connecticut's Athletic Association has violated Title IX. Mm. Christiana Kiefer here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website adflegal.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through The Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast and The Meeting House radio program. Also, there are links to the Intersection podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. Plus, you can link to video content, and you can access two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. 
Search for Faith Radio Podcast when you visit Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and other podcast platforms. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Bill Combs. He serves with Shiloh Global Ministry, and in our recent conversation, he shared information on how God's truth was communicated in the Torah using pictograms, a concept he explores in the book entitled Back to the Garden, Walking in God's Manifest Presence. Here now from that recent Meeting House conversation is Bill Combs. When we go to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and all things were created, made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That means that somewhere in the first verse of the Bible, Jesus was present working. So where is it? So when we go, we ask, where, is, where did John get the word word from? He actually got it from Genesis chapter 15, where it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, when you take the pictograms for word, mm-hmm. it is Dalit plus bait plus race. Bar, bait race is, is the word for bar. You have a bar mitzvah when, it's, when a son becomes a son of the covenant. He becomes an adult son. So bar is the word so Dalit is a is a pictogram for a door. So word, John was very wise in, in picking this word because the, the word means that all revelation comes through the door of his son. And so when John is marrying this with Jesus, he's saying Jesus is is that word in Genesis chapter one because the, the wording, in the beginning, it's exactly the same wording as the, as the Septuagint version of the Greek New Testament, which was their King James Version in that day. But let, because of that, let's go back to the very first verse of the Bible. Barashit, bara, Elohim. The second word is bara. Now, the, the thing about Greek, and the same thing with our language, is we have to have a verb in that language, in that sentence, in order for it to make sense to a Greek person. So when the when the Septuagint scholars got around, they tried to say, how are we going to find a verb in the first sentence? Barashit, in the beginning, bara Elohim. Elohim is God's name. Heaven and earth are places we all know, so we can't use any of those. But they could use bara. Now bara bar is adult son. When adult hmm. son leaves his father's family, he be, he creates the next generation. Bar is also a word for grain. When you plant a seed of grain in the ground, it creates the next generation of, of crop. So that was a word that they could translate into a verb, create. And so their translation then was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They didn't think they were covering up anything because, hero Israel, Lord, your God is one. But when, when Paul comes along and he says, they put a veil over the Old Testament. Whenever it's read, they don't they don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's only when they face Jesus that they recognize he's in the Old Testament. Now let's look at some other words. In in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-eight, it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. The word for bless is barak. Bar. Plus cough. Now cough is a 
is a pictogram for an open hand. And when I put my hand, my open hand over your head to bless you, your head conforms to my hand. And so what Barak means in pictograms is son conformed. And what did Paul say? Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined them to conform to the image of his son. Let's look at another word, the word for covenant. When God gave a word to Noah, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That word is barit. Bar, again, is the first two characters. Yod and tav, yod is a pictogram that looks like a man flexing his arm. And it means to work or to complete or make, make, make done. The word tav is, is in the symbol of a cross. When a person was plowing a field, he took a stick and tied it together, two sticks together, went down to the end of the field and planted it, went back and started the, the uh, oxen, and they plowed toward that mark, that, that sign. And so top looks like a cross. And so what does covenant mean? Covenant is accomplished by what the son worked or accomplished on the cross. That's what covenant means. Now, that kind of says something, doesn't it? You never get that out of those words if you look them up in the dictionary. But the pictograms tell you a lot more about what Jesus was doing, what God was doing through his son in the Old Testament. Bill Combs here on The Intersection. You can reach him by emailing bill at shilohglobalministry.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, David Clausen. In our conversation recently, he shared about the importance of Christians being educated and conversant about the life issue, the topic of a publication called Biblical Principles for Pro-Life Engagement. Here now from that conversation is David Clausen. When we were together in Dallas, um, I did talk to you about the need uh, for more resources for church leaders, for faithful Christians, to think through all the different issues that we deal with. You know, there's a lot of issues that I think most people consider political issues. And sure, uh, like the, the example that you just gave, the life issue, it's certainly a political issue. But before it's ever a political issue, it's a biblical, moral, theological issue. And that's why, especially in light of what happened on June 24th when the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, uh, there is now, um, well, let me just put it this way, there has never been a time when being able to think biblically uh, about the life issue was more important, uh, because under Roe v. Wade for 49 years, the Supreme Court had taken that right um, away from the people. Sure, you, states were able to eke by some protections for unborn children, but now with Roe v. Wade being overturned, um, the issue of protecting life in every single state uh, is up to the state. It's up to the uh, elective representatives and the people of those states. And so that's why I thought it was important to re retool my uh, my booklet, which you can find for free at frc.org forward slash worldview, uh, just to understand what the Bible actually does teach about the life issue and what the church has said for 2,000 years on the topic. Well, and let's talk about those two things that you just mentioned, what the Bible has to say about the life issue, and also how the church has stood for the sanctity of life for, well, the 2,000 years of, of church history since the time of Jesus. So let's talk, first of all, when we 
when we look at the scriptures, when we see the teachings of the scriptures with respect to the sanctity of life, what are some principles that that you see in God's Word? Yeah, such an important question. I'll, I'll definitely try to be brief on that, Bob, because it, it's so critical. I think, you know, my travels around the country speaking uh, with people all and speaking at churches, I think most people who have grown up in the church, who are, who are familiar with the Bible at some level, have probably heard the phrase uh, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Probably most people will know that that's from mm. Psalm 139. And, and that's a critical passage. If that's all we have in the Bible, I think we would see that the Bible affirms the personhood of the unborn, that the Bible ascribes value and dignity, uh, that it sees the unborn child as, as worthy of value. Um, but that's not all the Bible says, not even close to it. Uh, a couple texts I'll give you real quick. Um, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, really powerful text. Uh, Jeremiah talking about the Lord calling him from uh, from birth, uh, from before birth, really. Uh, that's where Jeremiah, he says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That language, I knew you, I consecrated you, I appointed you. Clearly, uh, the, the perspective of that passage of Scripture is that Jeremiah, before he was born, was Jeremiah, and that God had plans for his life. Uh, other examples, Isaiah 49.1 uh, talks about the servant of the Lord, how the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. A really significant text. Now, one other passage I'll give you, uh, Bob, is Luke chapter 1. And in my opinion, that's the most pro-life text in all of Scripture. Hmm. Um, if you'll recall that text, that's when uh, Mary finds out from the angel that she's pregnant. Um, and so she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with John the Baptist. And if you know Mary comes in in, in that scene, this is uh, chapter 1, verse 39. And when Mary walks into the, the house, Elizabeth says you know, something to the effect, Why is the mother of my Lord here to visit me? Uh, amazing thing right there. She calls Mary a mother at the point in pregnancy when some women don't even know they're pregnant, and she rightly calls Jesus her Lord. And if that weren't enough, in that same passage, John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. Well, what was the purpose of John the Baptist's life? It was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist is already fulfilling the calling that God has put on his life to be that forerunner while he's still in utero. Um, and he just knows he's, through the Holy Spirit that he's in the presence of Jesus. So those are just a couple of texts. Obviously the text about <laughs> thou shalt not kill. Um, but my, my take on it, Bob, is that just from cover to cover, the Bible is affirming the personhood of the unborn and that any other perspective, uh, that that is just completely off mark from what the Bible teaches. David Clawson here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to frc.org slash unborn. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by accessing the programming section at faithradio.org. Through the Meeting House homepage, there's a link to the Media Center. That's the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast and on the Meeting House program. You can find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. Plus, there are links to video content. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. 
Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.